we are in our study of prophecy, and I said this we're going to do over the next few months. Uh, remember, of course, over the next few months is two weeks a month. So it's going to be, you know, sort of a little bit stop and start as we're going to be looking at biblical prophecy. We began last week with some introductory matters, prophecy versus promise, which is an important distinction, right, about the intentionality of God or foretelling of God. Uh, prophecy versus choice, uh, complicated nature of prophecy, which we'll talk a bit about tonight as well. And around 25%, I depends on how you look at it. Because again, there's a little bit of a wiggle room in the idea of promise versus prediction. But in some way, around 25 to 28% of the Old Testament text is predictive, which is, I was kind of surprised about that in my own study about it. Uh, of course, this is not all messianic, right? Not all messianic prophecy, but uh, not even all concerning spiritual matters. Some is just about like, this is going to happen to this king, or this king's going to fall, or whatever. So just not even spiritual matters, but predictive in some way. Around 20%, 22-23% of the New Testament is predictive in some form or fashion. Again, we're lumping in some promises into that idea as well. But when we see those percentages, what should that tell us? This is a big part. God predicting the future, predicting what will happen, is a big part of his word for us. Now, a lot of that is apologetics, right, or, or uh, faith building. Uh, and now I'm not going to get into that yet, but a lot of that is faith building or uh, uh, evidence for why we should believe, why we have faith, what, why should we trust God. A lot of that is not faith building, but hope building or comfort giving. Right? We know the future. We know the prediction that God has for us, what is in store for us. And so that's not a means of building faith. I already believe in God, but it does help me get through the horrible times of life. It does get me, get me through some times when I, I maybe are not doing as well and I have com comfort and I have assurance because of what God has told me is going to happen. So this is obviously a large part of God's communication toward his people. Now, this week we're going to look at the nature of prophecy, specifically what forms prophecy takes in the Bible and what that means. Uh, and, and this will help us. This will be the last of the introductory material uh, before next week. No, not next week. In three weeks, uh, we're going to look at the core of the messianic prophecies, the kind of core prophetic nature of Scripture as it leads to the Messiah, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. So this week I want to look at what forms prophecy takes and some of the dangers. Because again, I said this last week, Prophecy is one of the most abusable, biblical prophecy is one of the most abusable and abused things in the whole Bible. People just make stuff up. I don't know. I should be more gracious. People probably do believe, a lot of people, some people are, I think are just making stuff up. A lot of people are, are earnest, I suspect, earnest in their teaching. But at the end of the day, it's still not what I think God is trying to tell us. So we have to be careful about how we approach prophecy. 1 Kings 20, verse 22, the first form of prophecy. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself. Consider what you have, uh, what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Very basic. 
straightforward spoken word of the future. Like this is the most easy kind of prophecy, right? It just is very straightforward, normal. There's no hidden meaning. There's no figurative language, right? It's just this thing's going to happen. And this time they gave them a, in a, a timeline. In the spring, this thing's going to happen. Sometimes straightforward prophecy is not, doesn't have a timeline. doesn't have like any sort of major markers. It's just the, God says this is what's going to happen. And that's pretty easy understand, to understand, right? The fulfillment was literal. There's no hidden, what does that mean? The king of Syria. It's literally the king of Syria is going to come make war. Like, that's it. That's the whole thing. It was only intended for the original recipient. That was it. This guy, the king, needed to know that this was going to happen. Prepare. This is what's going to happen. And it's done. Now, it does matter for us in the plan of, of the whole story of the Bible. We see the nature of God. We see what this king went through. But this prophecy, as far as having any sort of prophetic fulfillment for us, is, is, doesn't have any, right? It's over. It's done. That's the first part. That's the easiest if that was all prophecy was, we could all go home and that would be it. But of course, we know that's not it. Genesis 25, 21 through 23. And Isaac prayed to the Lord his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived and the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the over older shall serve the younger. Here we have figurative and we're going to spend a little bit of time on figurative prophecy where the literal words are not the intended meaning. She obviously doesn't literally have two nations in her womb. Like, that's physically impossible. We understand that. The reason I chose this one is this is where it's easy to understand the figure. The nation is a is figurative word, meaning what? Who's going to come from these people, right? The people that will come after the, her sons will end up growing and having many descendants and their descendants will have descendants and they will become two nations. We understand that. I think it's fairly easy for us to understand that the figurative language here, there's a lot of prophecies in the Bible that are not this easy to understand. The reason I chose this one, it's pretty simple. But here we also see the double meaning. There's a double meaning in this, in the figurative language of this prophecy that makes it have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. Because we have this second part here, the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Well, that did have an immediate fulfillment in their lifetimes where the younger got the inheritance and got the blessing and got the special privilege. And then, of course, that had a greater fulfillment in the nation of Edom. And, of course, we talked about this in our study of the minor prophets. The nation of Edom being subservient to or lesser than the nation of Israel. So figurative prophecy is a little bit complicated in two reasons. One, the words don't literally mean what they are. We understand that. But two, a lot of times they are fulfilled in multiple ways. We have to be careful about trying to decipher sometimes what that fulfillment will be or has been. Here we see a double fulfillment of this. Now, the most obvious examples of this are poetic. The poetic books... If you have your Bibles, you look at Isaiah or, I don't know, Micah or Nahum, pick a minor prophet, and it has that special indented stuff, right? I've talked about this before probably. The special indented text, poetic language, poetic in nature. Uh, this is following in the other forms of ancient Near East literature. Not just the Israelites did this, but this was a common form of writing in that time period. Stylized, idealized, and exaggerated. And the thing that I always compare it to is songs. Today, our songs today, they're poetry. Not in the sense of, you know, like hoity-toity poetry, but... 
the language is exaggerated. We understand that, that people who write songs, they don't always mean literally the thing that they're saying because they're trying to evoke what? They're trying to evoke a, a particular feeling or a particular response or trying to convey a particular emotion. Now, prophecy, it's not trying to do those necessarily, but we understand the idea of poetic language and we understand that prophecy, when it is poetic in nature, is figurative a lot of the time. Then we have metonymy. I, try, I debated whether to use these these words, but it's a fun word, metonymy, which is a stand-in for something else. A great example of this is in Hosea 5. Hosea 5, 3 through 4, I know Ephraim and Israel has not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of, of uh, whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Here, Ephraim is a stand-in, a metonym for Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ephraim was a part of the northern kingdom, but in literal, in the literal sense, Ephraim was not the whole northern kingdom because there was all those other tribes. But in the prophetic writing, the way Hosea is uh, saying this, is that God is pronouncing Ephraim, using Ephraim as a metonym or a stand-in for the whole northern kingdom. And why he says they don't get to return, they went into captivity, they never got to come back. They were done. That's what he means here. Of course, we know that because of history. So a lot of times in prophecy, there's going to be this idea of a metonym or a stand-in. of they're going to, uh, God is going to use one thing, maybe a smaller thing, to represent a much bigger thing. But sometimes he does the opposite. Sometimes he uses a much bigger thing as a stand-in for a smaller thing. So we have to be aware of that as we study prophecy. Simile is the next thing, a figurative language of parables. Think, or not parables, or prophecy. Think parables. This is like a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like X, Y, or Z. That's a simile. A lot of prophecy is that way too. Of this thing is going to happen and it's going to be like this. Zechariah 12, 7 through 9. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that this glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord, it will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. These people are not going to be literally David. They're not going to be literally God. And what does it mean when, when the, the house of David is going to be like God? Well, not omnipotent, not, um, not mighty in that sense, not supernatural, not divine, but... They will be strong. They will have the strength of God, like the angel of the Lord, who goes before them and keeps them safe and protects them. They will be protected, right? And so we understand a simile. Again, you may think, why are we going through all this stuff? The ways that people misunderstand prophecy is that they don't think about these things. They just think that things have to be literally what they all are at the time, and we know that that's not the case. Finally, we come to the thorniest kind of figurative language, the allegory, which is really where people get into trouble with prophecy, is the idea of an allegory, which is basically a long string of metaphors or similes. It's a, just a long thing. that it's, it's all made up of metaphors, but it's a lengthy passage that becomes an allegory. And this is where people really get into trouble. Psalms 80, verse uh, 7 through 13 Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought out a vine of Egypt. You drove out the nations and pl uh, planted it. And the, as we go through this long thing that becomes an allegory, he's using the vine, the vine out of Egypt, and then all of the things about the vine is how he describes what's happening to, Isra to Israel, right? 
Uh, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed upon it. Again, this long set of metaphors all around this vine and we can understand this. I chose this because it, it, it's, again, pretty clear. The nation of Israel, right? The vine out of Egypt. It started in Egypt with the Exodus. That was the origin, uh, origin of the national identity of Israel. He drove out the nations. Well, drove out e Egypt, and then he drove out the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the, par uh, the not parasites. That's not a thing. Uh, you cleared the ground for it. Again, as he drives it all, he drives all the people out. You, they took deep root and filled the land. They grew in the land. They had cities and nations and they had descendants upon descendants and they grew into the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. Right? We understand this allegory. But David is not really talking about a vine. He's talking about something else. And where we get into trouble is because allegories are symbolic we tend to want to make them mean what we want them to mean and not necessarily what the author had in mind. Now, there's only one time that I can think of that the author specifically chose to use allegory, to interpret something allegorically. Uh, let's see, did I do all these notes? Other figurative language is pretty easy to decipher from context, which we've seen over and over again. Um, let's see, I said all that stuff. Uh, let's see here. Okay, let's talk about the difference between allegory and allegorizing. Alleg I don't know if I said that right. Allegorizing. I think that's right. To use an allegory, we just read the psalmist, David, he did an allegory. He used an allegory. Allegorizing is to then take things that were not meant to be allegories, things that God did mean in a literal sense, and try to derive some separate other meaning from them, right? That's what to allegorize is. And we do this. People do this. I don't know if we do this, but a lot of people do this, where we take an Old Testament story, and it is the story. It's pretty basic, pretty plain. There was people, and they did stuff, and stuff happened. And we try to draw out some deeper other meaning to it, which may or may not be the case. Because for the most part, if the Bible story is literal and it is happened how it had, how it happened, it happened how it happened, then other than practical application, there's not really much more deeper spiritual metaphor to put on it. And there's only one time I can think of where the writers of the Bible do this, and that's in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 21 through 26. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a freed woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. That's, who is that? Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, right? But the son of the free woman was born, uh, let's see here. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So now Paul is laying on an extra level of meaning to the, the story that actually happened, the literal, physical, flesh and blood story of Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar and that whole thing. 
This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And he's making this comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and Ishmael, and Isaac, and, and Hagar, and Sarah, and Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem. And he layers this on, ultimately in service, to the main point of Galatians, which is stop following the old law. That's, he's doing this to make that overall point. But importantly, Paul does not do this at the expense of the meaning of the original events. He doesn't try to say that this is only, this is the only thing that we should drive, derive from that story. He's not saying that this allegory is the only way we should interpret Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. He's applying a separate leaning to it, as he can because he's an inspired prophet. But we need to be careful when we do that because I'm not an inspired prophet. I don't have the Spirit of God on me, giving me supernatural wisdom and insight. There are spiritual lessons to be learned from the Old Testament, from many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. But we cannot allow our allegory to undercut the meaning of the events as they originally happened. This event, this story happened... And it wasn't necessarily about, in the, original, in the original story, it wasn't about the two covenants, the covenant of Christ and the covenant of Moses. It wasn't about that at all in the original story. It was about Abraham trusting in God or not. Is he going to trust God to fulfill his promise to make him a great nation, or is he going to not trust God and take matters into his own hands? And what's going to happen with Ishmael? That's the original story. So, just because some scripture is allegorical, doesn't mean we can assign allegory wherever we like. This is the danger and the temptation, especially not at the expense of the original readers and audience. Now, the two places I should have had this up here, one that we do this a lot is Song of Solomon, because we don't like thinking about Song of Solomon, so we say it must all be allegory. It doesn't seem to be presented as allegory. The other one we do this with is Revelation. Because we don't understand Revelation. We maybe don't want to think about Revelation. And so we say it all must be allegorical. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we have to be careful in how we approach such texts. Not all figurative language is predictive. Sometimes when God uses figurative language, he either uses, again, he could use a simile or a metaphor or a metonym. It's not predicting the future. It's just he's using poetic language to make a point. He's exaggerating to make a point. Often God spoke about current events in figurative ways. Non-literal language does not give us license to interpret things however we want. We're going to talk about this on Wednesday night. This foundational principle of Bible understanding. The author has the right to determine meaning. When things are symbolic and figurative, we don't get to make up any meaning that we like. We need to strive to understand what the original author meant in his original context. Genesis 41, 1 through 7. As we go back to other forms of prophecy. After two years, Pharaoh deemed what he was, uh, Pharaoh dreamed rather, that he was standing in the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed, uh, reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. That would be such an interesting dream. I've had some dreams that have been really interesting, and I think to myself, maybe I'm having a vision, but I probably am not. 
And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Uh, we'll stop there. What is this? This is a symbolic vision. This is one of the main ways that God sent prophecy to his people, is these visions and dreams, uh, wholesale visions and dreams. They're seeing these fantastical things that are taking place. And so we have to try to understand what does that mean? Uh, Hebrews 10.1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law of Moses, the law that was given on Sinai, have a shadow of the good things to come. That is the things that we have in the new covenant. And so we see the last form of prophecy, which is typographic or types, the type-antitype idea that Old Testament people, events, and circumstances form what the Greek authors called tupos, or types, of things to come. Uh, an example of this would be, of course, the Passover lamb as a type looking forward to Jesus, prophesying the coming of Jesus and who Jesus would be. We have to be very careful in this too, because we can't just say a thing in the Old Testament is a type, uh, a, a, a prophetic uh, laying the groundwork of something to come, because sometimes they just did stuff, right? And there was meaning for them, and there was reasons that they did it. But not everything in the Old Testament is a type. Not everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of things that will come later. We need to be very careful not to overuse this idea of prophecy. Okay. Plain prophecy. I wish it was all like that. Figurative language. Metaphors. Similes. Metonyms, uh, allegories, visions, and types. Those are the ways, the forms, that prophecy comes in in the Bible. And the vast majority of things we've talked about tonight are not straightforward. We understand that, I hope. But as we study prophecy, we need to let the authors mean what they meant in their context and not superimpose our own meaning upon the prophecies of Scripture. We need to be very careful not to do that as we try to understand prophecy. So, this general outline. We're going to take the literal meaning first, if at all possible. Then we're going to find, if there's not a literal meaning that makes sense, a figurative language, that, what does that stand for? Metaphor, and then allegory or symbolism. Visions uh, are, are in the same sort of vein as allegory in that they're wholesale, just long stretches of symbolic language. And this is the order that we should try to understand things is. And the idea of a type requires special significance, which we'll talk about at another lesson. In general, we should assume a literal interpretation unless one of a couple things. A prophet of God, either the originator or another prophet, says not to. That happens sometimes, that something is in the text and the author says, don't mean, I don't mean this literally, or another author comes along later and says, he didn't mean this literally, then we would know not to. Or if there's a literary reason to think it's figurative, which it would be genre or context, again, poetic. If there, we're in the midst of a poetic section, we would understand literary. We would understand from a literary perspective not to take this thing literally. And then finally, if the literal interpretation would create a contradiction with something that is explicit in the Bible, something else that is very explicit in the Bible. So we, we have a prophecy of Scripture, and if we take this literally, it makes this other thing untrue. Well, probably that prophecy we should be understanding figuratively. Otherwise, it would create this contradiction. But the default needs to be, as we approach biblical prophecy, to understand this as plainly as we can. And the reason for that is... 
God really did mean for the Bible to be understandable, right? He meant the Bible to be understandable. We build and add and, and build up these layers of meaning on things that in reality are quite simple. But maybe we don't like what they say. Maybe we wish it meant something else. Maybe we have preconceived ideas about doctrine that if we understood it plainly, it would violate. Whatever it is that we come up with. At the end of the day, this is no different than how we approach the rest of the Bible, right? Default, let it mean what it says. Unless there's a good reason not to, in which case we follow these other rules that we do with all of the language. Literal language and figurative language of all kinds. The last two verses I want to read, and then we'll conclude this evening. These forms... This is probably, the, I don't know, this might be the most academic, just sort of informational sermon I've done in a while. But the form of these prophecies has a function. And that function is to change the way we live. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the prophecy or the foretelling, the prediction that God will come back and destroy the world. That's the prediction in 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The prediction of the end of the world, which is, I guess, a prophecy in a sense, but of course it's going to be over at that point, so it doesn't really matter. But based on all these other prophecies that God has made, I know that his prediction about the end of the world is true because of all these other prophecies that I can read and see that he was right every time about the future. That should change my life. It should change what I care about. It should change how I live. What sort of people ought we to be in godliness and holiness because I know that God knows the future. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and to keep what is written, for the time is near. Biblical prophecy is designed to change your life. To change the way you live. To care what you care about, what you think about, how you act, how you speak, how you treat other people. Because I know that God is omniscient and knows all things. I should trust that what he said is true. And if what he said is true, then I know that the end is coming. Could be. No, it wasn't then. It would have been so cool if it had been then. I don't know when. But I know it's coming, so we should be holy and godly. Amen? We should be waiting for and hastening that day. Waiting for him to come, come back and take us to him. If you're ready for that, great. I'm so glad you're ready. If you're not ready for that, let's make it right. Amen? The time is now. Come. Come. Always stand and sing.